I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part five in our series, An Alternative Society. Christians mostly realize that their collective presence should improve the world and communicate truth to those beyond the church. But what about inside it? In what way is the family of God responsible to care for and raise the least among us? As we continue to have our weeks-long conversation about what it means to be the church, to be a community, this week I sat down and I started to think about my grandma's uh, VHS archives. Uh, Yeah, yeah, somewhere in my grandma's VHS archives, there's footage of me as a small child singing. I know because I've seen it lots. Now, we called my grandma Mimi. Uh, This is in the South, we do that kind of thing. You got like your mama and papa, that's a thing. Uh, Grammy, grandpappy, that kind of stuff. My grandma, we call Mimi, still do. And my grandpa, before he died, was Pappy. I guess we still call him that, too. Mimi and Pappy were uh, surprisingly tech-savvy in the 80s and 90s. They had a dual VCR, so you could make copies, uh, a camcorder complete with the bag over the shoulder that held the VCR in it. They had a separate VHS speed rewinder. That's right, because the VCR itself was kind of slow. Levi, I'm sure you remember this. You're old. <laughs> and, oh, and they had several drawers filled with homemade VHS tapes, uh, probably seven feet tall, full all the way back. Man, if you weren't really around to experience VHS as a format, here's what you need to know. You probably think, you young people, all oh, right, that bygone format looks like a book. Uh, there's a movie on there. And uh, maybe you think that's it, but that thing was a miracle. You could buy a whole pack of these things from Walmart, blank, nothing on them, and then you fill them up with whatever, you know, sitcoms and soap operas and home movies, all that stuff, because the blank VHS had three recording modes. There was SP, LP, and EP. That's uh, to the layman. Standard play, long play, and does anyone know the final one? Tab, do you remember this? Extended play, yeah, yeah, he's making a knowing face at me, but I can't hear his voice, so I'll assume that he knew. So if you set your VHS tape, or your VCR rather, to SP, you could fit two hours on it without compromising the quality, I use in air quotes, uh, because it was already abysmal. In fact, I'll be honest, uh, this, what I'm doing right now, has almost nothing to do with where we're going tonight, (laughs) but... As I was writing this spiel, I really wanted to show you guys how bad VHS was. And uh, I found this clip. It's actually not a great clip, but for some reason it was hilarious to me. Look at that. So on the right, that's your uh, digitized VHS. And on the left there, apparently, is like a 4K version. It just looks like someone put a warbly stained glass window over the right side of the street. So many questions about this clip. Why is it a lighthouse? Why is there this music? What is this? I was actually laughing out loud in my office (laughs) over this clip on Thursday afternoon. Anyway, so it was bad. Uh, It was bad. VHS is a bad format. Two hours in SP, but if you're willing to compromise that quality, uh, you can record on LP and get four hours out of that thing. Or in EP, you get six hours on a VHS. Uh, But whatever it is that you record will be barely visible at that point. That's like uh, four average movies on one tape, man, or like Oppenheimer twice. That's a, that's a lot of content on a VHS. And Mimi and Pappy put everything on VHS tapes in EP, and every tape was just pure chaos. It would be like 
1987 Macy's Day Parade, the final episode of MASH, My Little Sister's Ballet Recital, E.T., and then the Challenger exploding out of nowhere. <laughs> Look it up, it's a thing, the Challenger exploding. And somewhere in that sock drawer of footage, uh, Mimi has this clip that she used to show people all the time of me, circa 1988, I think, singing the song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. You guys aware of that song? Yeah, this is a great little tune. And they loved that thing, man. They showed it to everyone. They would bring it up at family gatherings. Have you seen the footage of Josh singing how I decided to follow Jesus? Footage was legendary in my family. And I should remind everyone why. I mean, this is a, an era during which there are relatively few photographs and even fewer fo uh, videos of somebody's childhood. Your parents might film like Christmas morning, even though we don't rewatch that. I don't know why that was a thing. If you even had a camcorder at all, this is kind of futuristic technology, or they would film like a Little League game, and really no one's ever going to rewatch that thing. But then that's about it. They didn't just film stuff all the time unless you had like a real tech-savvy nerd for parents. So this was like one video of three videos of me when I was a small child. Now, nowadays, if you ask like someone to see a video of someone's kid, you'd probably say, yeah, which day of their life would you like to see, and which hour of that day would you like to see? I've got it all. So, here's a question, non-rhetorical at this point. You guys know what that means, non-rhetorical. Where do you think I learned to sing that song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus? Church, church. yep, church. And uh, to be perfectly honest, in a certain sense, that is where I decided to follow Jesus, in church. Um, if you're not already there, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, where Tristan just read, John chapter 13. Now, a lot of people like to tell bad stories about church. A lot of us have bad stories about church. If you spent any length of time in church, something bad has probably happened in that kind of interpersonal network of relationships. So we have bad stories about church. I do, and for years, I told them. And that's not necessarily wrong or anything. We can, and I think should, be honest about the stuff that we've been through. Yeah, and you guys know, like, I wrote this whole thing about why people give up on Jesus and on the church and why I almost did, but when I was kind of gearing up for the release of this thing, I decided to uh, record this companion piece uh, podcast miniseries. So if you haven't heard it, it's actually fascinating because it's not primarily me or my story. It's me sitting down with a few friends who faithfully follow Jesus, but who have had a rough go of it. And I asked them, in essence, over the series of this podcast, like, well, well, why are you still here? And I didn't plan it or script it or anything. I gave them that much information, what I just told you. I'd like to ask you this question in a roundabout way, really conversational, in-the-moment stuff. Just hit record and we start talking. And without agenda, one by one, all these different men and women from really different backgrounds and stories and tragedies answered the question of, how are you still here with, I kid you not, church, which I'll admit came as something of a surprise to me, and I'm a professional churchgoer. Uh, my friend Bethany, whose mom abandoned their family and who experienced all kinds of shame in her southern church world, how did you make it? Why are you still here? The church. My friend Jaron, who's born and raised in Hawaii, and he moved to Portland, and he felt alienated as this kind of Asian kid in a primarily white space. How did you stay faithful through that season of discouragement? The church. My friend Hakeem, who was actually raised in an Islamic black nationalist cult, he came to faith when he was a teenager because a guy invited him to Young Life. And now he's a pastor, he's a Bible teacher, he works at the Bible Project. He told me this about church. I've come to believe and realize that the church is 
a community where I will be wounded and a community where I will be healed. And that's just the family. That's a family, right? Like your family wounds you and yeah. you wound. And you also participate in the healing of somebody, and that's where you can find some healing as well. Now, obviously, given my job, the work to which I've dedicated my life for years now, I believe in the church. If I didn't, I wouldn't be here. I need no convincing, not now anyway. But there was a time when I learned to resent that VHS tape of me singing, I have decided to follow Jesus, because this was something the church had taught me, and I wasn't sure if I wanted anything to do with the church and its people. And now I understand the church is people, and I've been around people. Uh, I've been one of them long enough to know we're not actually so great. So I figure, well, I know church is good, but other people, they need convincing. And then these friends of mine, they're all telling me stories about bad stuff that happened to them in church, what with the people there and all. But then they go on, well, why are you still here? Also church. And I thought, oh, that's weird. Now, earlier, Tristan read from John chapter 13, one of the most beautiful, beloved stories in the life of Jesus. Jesus, fully aware at this point that all authority in heaven and on earth has been handed over to him personally, and his first order of business is to stoop down, put his hands on his friend's filthy feet. This is God himself carrying out the lowest, most humble gesture of self-effacing service, the work of a servant, the work of a slave, actually. So it seemed at the time, anyway, he hadn't actually done that just yet. He was going to go on to die for them. That's as low, as self-sacrificial as it can possibly get. Us, uh, we're okay with people if they treat us right, most of the time, sometimes anyway. And in that same story about the foot washing, Jesus says this incredible thing. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. And then he makes it specific, lest we kind of redefine love for ourselves. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if, so it's contingent, if you love one another. If you love other people the way that Jesus loves, the wild, self-sacrificial, stooping to serve those who deserve it, the very least, those who betray you, if you do that, then the world will know somehow that Jesus is king. But here's the kicker. You and I can't do that perfectly. Now don't, don't get me wrong, we can do it, but not without failing at least from time to time. So therein lies the rub. The same people meant to love you as Jesus loves and who can and will do so also won't do it sometimes. And Jesus knew that. This means, and please listen to me on this, the inevitability of our failure does not render the power of our love obsolete. Meaning, even though we will fail one another, our love as a family is still how the world will know that we follow Jesus. Who hurt you? The church. Why do you still want to follow Jesus? The church. And we actually learned this very early. So what do we do? What is pressing for us? for the vision of our church in the months and years ahead. Now, many, if not most of us, likely know a person or people who are raised in their church only to bail out on it sometime later in life. But perhaps surprisingly, if you Google actual studies conducted on children raised in the church, you will find that across decades, not just in the recent past and not just 20 years ago, but across decades in the West, statistically speaking at least, kids who are raised going to church are 
far more likely to remain faithful to it. Now, stay with me and turn to the left from John to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 is another beautiful, beloved story of Jesus, one of the most, um, the one where he takes a little child and he says this, this is what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God, which sounds cute to us as a society of uh, obsessive helicopter parents, but in the first century, small children had no status at all. They were at the very bottom rungs of the social ladder in a culture that uses you know, children as social media bragging trophies, we don't really get this. We need this explained to us. In our culture, kids are kind of like competition. Kids rule our lives. They steer our decisions. They crowd our schedules. They overshadow our social lives and careers, and we pose them for little photographs to garner acclaim for ourselves. But to Jesus' audience, children were to be seen maybe but not heard. And they weren't innocent, they weren't noteworthy, they weren't precious or special, they earned you no status to speak of, and they had no status themselves, which sounds mean, but it's actually these qualities that Jesus is highlighting when he uses children as an example of greatness, not innocent, not noteworthy, not precious, not special. In his commentary on Matthew, scholar Frederick Dale Bruner writes, it's not so much the child's subjective innocence or purity that is in view as it is the child's objective smallness and low status. The child, in the opinion of Jesus' culture, had to limit itself to listening and obeying. So after Jesus holds up a kid and says, this is what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God, the smallness of children is what makes them great, he goes on to say this, Matthew 18, beginning of verse 5, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Now remember, Jesus is teaching his apprentices his way of life. These are not like abstract teachings or ideas for the hypothetically spiritually enlightened. Jesus is teaching his students to do the things that he does. So there's a challenge here. If you can't imagine becoming like a little child in the first place, no status, no prestige, you've got a serious problem because Jesus himself is going to be without status, without prestige. He will be humiliated. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. And because of all this, he will be exalted and crowned king through his smallness, his lack of status and prestige. So it's not enough to learn an entirely new paradigm of greatness. Disciples of Jesus are to extend that paradigm of greatness to those in low status. Welcome children means welcome those who have no status. It is the honor of a disciple of Jesus to live as someone with low status, and it is the duty of a disciple of Jesus to regard those of low status with honor. And when you do this, you welcome Jesus himself, his way of life, his kingdom. And there's both kind of a literal and figurative sense to what Jesus says, meaning scholars argue he's actually saying, whoever welcomes little children welcomes him, like in the literal sense. Those who adopt children, those who do foster care, those who become spiritual mothers and fathers, they welcome Jesus. And that's some of you here tonight already. You, you do that, and you need to hear that. When you welcome these children... You welcome Jesus. The king himself said so. That's not me. That's Jesus' words. Well done. And he asks us to do this in his name, which means out of devotion to Jesus, do this. In keeping with his commands, do this. Jesus is saying, because of what I mean to you, do this for me. 
And then he gets intense. So brace yourself. Here comes one of the most notorious sayings of Jesus in the entire New Testament. Look down at verse 6. Then if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus takes hurting the faith of others very seriously. Now, notice he doesn't provide any kind of nuance to how one may or may not hurt the faith of another person. It could be through phoniness or hypocrisy. It could be through outright speaking against the truth of Jesus. And if you're like me, you kind of recoil at how intense this reads against the offender. But from another angle, it reads as the impassioned protectiveness of God for those precious to him. It's God's version of do not mess with my kids. So any way you slice it, it's pretty serious stuff. There's no way around that. A millstone was, you know, if you don't know, this kind of component of the simple mechanism used for grinding wheat. In Jesus' context, there are actually two varieties of said millstone. One was the small hand-driven kind, and the other was so big that a mule had to drive it. Uh, guess which one Jesus references here? <laughs> He literally, in Greek, mentions, and I quote, a donkey millstone, the biggest kind. And even his reference to the sea is the vast open ocean. So Jesus is nothing if not vivid in his word imagery. And he goes on, verse 7, Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Again, yikes. We can and should read this as a scathing warning against those who damage the faith of other people. But we should also read it as the fiery, protective love of Jesus who takes the hurting of people very seriously and plans to do something about it. Jesus is not passive or emotionless about those who hurt others. He, use, he uses words and metaphors so strong most of us would not use them. And the woe that Jesus pronounces is a heartbroken one. The, the heart of God breaks for both the victim and the victimizer. The entire situation is a tragedy. Woe to the world because of it. And then keep reading in verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. This is a teaching from Jesus' manifesto for kingdom living, what we often call the Sermon on the Mount, which happens in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in that teaching, it was specifically arranged uh, to protect women against uh, objectifying lust of men. But here, Jesus takes that same teaching and he repurposes that same graphic imagery to protect those of impressionable faith, and in particular, children. Again, Bruner writes, Jesus' way of approaching the problem of hurting other people's faith is severe and death-dealing. He commands us to look at what is hurting faith in ourselves and others and kill it. Jesus' approach to such problem is not to humor them. It is to cut them out immediately and throw them as far away as possible. So 
the whole millstone around the neck image is here more specifically grounded in the concept of hell, something the New Testament also calls the second death or more consistently destruction. It is for Jesus a very real, very serious consideration. So his warning is in love for the offender and in love for the offended. Love in the mind of Jesus requires ruthless self-awareness and self-control. And that's what this is all about, love. We are to welcome children in the name of Jesus and to do nothing to interfere with their impressionable journey toward faith or else. And if you haven't noticed, we have a lot of kids at Van City Church, like a lot. Babies, toddlers, preschoolers, grade schoolers, middle schoolers, high schoolers. Now, some of you guys have kids, some of you don't, both are fine. You people with kids, hopefully you already realize the tremendous responsibility that you have to raise them in the truth of Jesus. It is first and foremost, in other words, your responsibility to lead your children to Jesus through your words, your actions, your lifestyle, the way you treat them, the way you read to them daily from the scriptures, the way you exemplify the life of someone dedicated to the practices of Jesus. Meaning, you know, would your kids say, man, my parents read that Bible every morning? Or would your, would your kids say of you, like, my parents pray with me every single night, or they bring me to church every single Sunday? That's on you as parents. But here's something pressing on all of us, and that I venture a guess many of us either don't realize or often forget, and that is that all of the kids in this church are all of our responsibilities because we are a family. And thinking about that this week, it occurred to me how much I remember from church even as a small boy. I'm so sure the same is true of those, those of you who are raised in the church. So when I was very small, Miss Tessie, she was always very kind to me. She asked me how I was doing. Even when I was really little, I remember Miss Teresa. She was like that too. Mr. Ural, yes, it's a real name. Mr. Ural, he talked to me in a non-patronizing way when I was very small. I remember that specifically, and he made me laugh. He joked with me. So did Mr. Howell. So did Mr. Rob. Mr. Randy and Miss Melanie treated me like family, as did Mr. Frank and Miss Angie. And when I got older, they talked to me about following Jesus. They asked me real questions about what it meant for me to have faith as a young man, and they held me accountable and would ask me things like, oh, well, what are you doing? Why do you behave like that? That's not what a Christian does. These were adults, friends of my parents, that I knew and loved, and I believed that they loved me. And believe me, as a kid, I was not always easy to love. <laughs> Trust me, you think it's bad now? Ooh, man, I really made it hard on these people. And their love shaped me. It really did. But then, listen to this. Here's the other side of it. I also remember people, specific people, and I'm not going to name names or anything, but and I'm not talking about that did me some specific egregious harm that just simply weren't kind to me as a kid and that I learned to avoid in church because of it. It's not even that they were explicitly rude, per se. They just weren't warm, or they didn't say hey to me, or they ignored me, or they talked to my parents like I wasn't even there, and that shaped me too. And look, I get it. Kids are weird. You know, Sometimes you, you talk to them, and it feels like they aren't giving you the time of day, but you don't know what's going on in their little hearts, or how a consistent presence of love is shaping the person that they are becoming. 
And I can see it in the stories of my kids already. I'm sure those of you with kids could say the same thing. Like, so my kids, two out of three of them, have been coming to this church ever since they were born. Well, I guess all three of them have been coming to this church ever since they were very, very small. They were born into this family. It's all they've ever known, this church and these people. Every week they tell me stories about you guys. <laughs> so Isla loves how Lexi talks to her about dogs. I hear about that all the time. Or she likes how Kiana talks to her about Harry Potter or how Wanda is, in her words, such a nice lady. Or... Beck loves how Tab and Levi always remember to talk to him and ask him how he do. He loves Andy's He-Man tattoos. He loves when Dave or Kevin and Luke are his teachers. And so far, Arlo hates everybody. I don't know what his problem is. <laughs> except, except sometimes Jan, sometimes Tiffany, I guess. The, the Spirit's working on him. Give him a minute. He'll come around. <laughs> please, please help. <laughs> He'll come around. But honestly, uh, that's just a sample size. You know, I could go on and on. This is not exaggeration to puff somebody up and make guys feel good about my kids or bad about my kids. I could go on and on about how many of you are fundamentally shaping what my kids believe, consciously and subconsciously, about what church is and what church is for. Just this morning, you know, my kids and I are gearing up to watch Ghostbusters, and, uh, and Beck said, it's Sunday, right? And I said, yeah, and he said, heck yeah, church, just like that. Heck yeah, church. And I was like, I tried not to oversell it. But I was like, yeah. And inside, I was like, yeah, I'm freaking yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what church is for, to love one another. And so much of our church is made up of kids. I mean, you guys, you should hear our staff meetings. They almost revolve around, what are we going to do about all these kids? Church is, church is the alternative society where kids have access to caring intergenerational relationships. They are not here for daycare while the rest of us learn what it means to follow Jesus. They're here to learn the exact same thing as you and to learn it from you. So Taylor Long, who was up here just a minute ago, she's our uh, deacon of Van City Kids. To end tonight, she's going to join me up here to talk about what it means to obey Jesus by welcoming children in his name. Guys, welcome once again, Taylor. <laughs> Make sure you take the good microphone, not the bad one. There's only one now, so I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see. Taylor, thanks for being here, by the way. Of course. How comfortable do you feel in your chair? I realize I don't know how to sit in front of people to have a conversation like this. Um, Van City, you know as good as and better than anyone, is kind of unique and terms of its demographics. You guys, we sit up here or stand up here on Sunday every week and say, well, we have a lot of kids. We have a lot of kids, but it's really true. How many kids are at Van City on a given Sunday night? Um, a lot. Uh, yeah, I was just on the phone with a woman that works for the curriculum that we use, and she was trying to get an idea of our church context in order to help me. And so she was asking about our numbers and asking me how many adults we have and how many kids we have. And I learned from her that on average, a church, the kid number is about 20% of the adult number. <clears throat> and a couple Sundays ago, we had 60 kids here and about 80 adults here. So we, <laughs> our, <laughs> our proportions are way off of the average. <laughs> yeah, and when you told her that number, what did she say? She said, oh my gosh. <laughs> Exactly. So a lot, a lot of kids. I mean, way above the national average. 
So what kind of unique needs does that create for us as a church? Yeah, um, I would say about every three to four months, Patrick and I are like, okay, I guess we got to make another class. we got to figure out where to put all of these kids. These classes are getting too big. Um, we always need more volunteers, you know. Um, yeah, I'd say it just feels like we are really trying to manage this huge gift that we have. Yeah, and it is that. It is a gift. Now, and, and Van City Kids, for those of us who aren't down there every week, I'm not down there, and I know some of you guys, and not in a guilt trip sense, but if you're not down there serving, it kind of becomes a little bit out of sight, out of mind. They're down there right now in their classes, and we don't know what's happening. So uh, for those of us who aren't deeply familiar, what goes on in uh, each of our kids' classes each week? Um, so first they all stampede out of here, and most of them head downstairs, and they're greeted by adults that they know. We try to keep the same adults serving with the same about ages of kids so that real relationships can get built between the kids and the grown-ups in their room. And they color, they have activities, they have games that are all centered around a Bible story that they get to watch on a video. They eat a snack all together. Um, yeah, it's just a time, it's a, it's a developmentally appropriate time for each of the age groups that we have. Yeah, and they come back telling stories. I, I mean, I don't know if you guys... Every week, I'm like, what was your class like? What was the lesson like? What was and sometimes they're like, eh, I forgot, you know. But often, they are telling me with, uh, the, you know, like a retelling that demonstrates comprehension about something that they learned from the scriptures or about something that was demonstrated to them from the scriptures by this, what seems to us like a silly little game or a craft. I made this thing because there was a story about this thing that Jesus did, and it's beautiful. And they'll, they'll call on that information later when they'll overhear me and Abby talking about like, oh, you know, I'm teaching this thing in the scriptures and one of our kids will be like, right, that's that story about this guy, um, which is beautiful. What, what kind of stories do you hear? I mean, from your own kids, but also from other parents about what kids are learning, the experiences of kids that they're having in our church. Yeah, I get texts from people that are, which I love, which are videos of their kids singing songs that they learned at church or reciting the Bible verse that they learned at church. Um, I know my kids will usually just randomly remember a Bible story that they learned or like a funny thing that happened. And um, I think too, I have like really special memories about ways I've seen you guys loving my kids because that's, you know, the frame of reference I have. Like just Last Sunday, Coda was so excited. She's like, Graham wrote her whole, his whole name on the page. And I was like, really? <laughs> like, just little things like um, adults knowing the kids here and that being really sweet. Like, all my kids know that <laughs> Dave Zarate's birthday is on Christmas Eve. <laughs> 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 or I was just thinking, too, about um, if Scott Barger is downstairs and Seth's in his class, I'm going to hear about... <laughs> Seth wasn't listening, and what Scott did to correct his behavior, and what we need to talk about when we get home, and I really appreciate that, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I've had stories where 
Uh, usually Beck, well, my son Beck will be like, I didn't like my teacher, he was rude to me. I'm like, what did he do that was rude? And he's like, he told me I needed to stop distracting everyone from the lesson. <laughs> I'm like, dude, that's not rude. He's supposed to say that. And then the next week, same teacher will be like, this teacher rules, he was so nice, you know, uh, which is beautiful. And I want, I want both things. Um, so as for those of us, whether we have kids or don't have kids or where, whatever season of life, whatever age demographic, since this is such a tremendous part of our church, even more so than the average church, and since it's so, Jesus takes it so seriously, how can someone, you know, serve Van City Kids? And if, if they're considering serving, what could they expect? And how can they, beyond just serving in the classrooms and, and you know, trying to corral chaos, how can they be a meaningful presence in our kids' classes and in our kids' lives? Yeah, so if you want to serve, we, um, it's one Sunday a month is our expectation, and if you have a heart for a certain age of kid, we really want to accommodate that and connect people with kids that maybe they have a certain comfort level for or passion for. That's really great. Um, and I would say what you can expect for your time is that there's gonna be a lot of kids and they're all really excited. Um, and so there is a certain amount of helping kids learn how to love each other and be respectful of each other. And um, in addition to how do we love Jesus and um, yeah, I think that we try to give the time in the classes uh, breathing room so that as an adult, if you want to bring something to that class, um, like a certain idea you have about the Bible story or whatever, it's not so regimented that you can't have a conversation with a kid, or if a kid has a question, you can't talk about it for a little bit. And um, we try to give those like pieces um, a place in the time. So like for our older kids, some of them are learning how to write in a journal, and the grown-ups in there are talking with them about when you want to pray about something, if you want to write it in the journal, or what does it look like for us all to pray for each other? How do, we, how do you get to pray for your friend, and they, you can model that for them? Um, there's a lot of space for that kind of thing to build real relationship between the adults and the kids in the room. Yeah. Yeah, you know, honestly, guys, this teaching started out of a, you know, a plan for this series, and we wanted to talk about at some point in the series the way that the church is a witness to the world, the way that our love for Jesus um, teaches other people about Jesus by the way that we live. And I sat down to map this thing out and write it and realize, like, good grief, one of the most pressing, we tend to think about like mission and justice as primarily or maybe even only like, you know, going out and evangelizing a coworker or, or, you know, working at the food bank here in Vancouver. And those two things are important. They're beautiful things. But just as important is the way that we treat one another within the church and the way that we teach the kids of our church how to follow Jesus. It's probably the most accessible every day, every weekend and week out for each of us to um, carry out the mission of God by telling other people what it means to follow Jesus. And um, you think about, like what Taylor's saying, people, kids having questions about Bible and stuff. Like, honestly, you know, theology means a lot to me, and I don't think that our kids are looking for sophisticated theological answers to complicated questions about the scriptures, and I don't really care. What I care about is them seeing the same people week in and week out and be like, 
man, this person comes to church and they're here every week and I see them and I see that they're consistently trying to do what my parents are trying to do, which is to follow Jesus faithfully. So for those of us, in other words, um, who for whatever reason in this season of life, maybe there's some of us who can't at this point serve by teaching kids classes or by being in the classrooms week in and week out. How can all of us as a church, for you who's closest to Van City Kids, how can we all be a faithful presence of Jesus in the lives of the many kids at Van City? Um, well, first of all, you can pray for the kids, pray for their parents, um, pray for the volunteers that are downstairs. Um, I think that this time is really impactful, and if we're thinking about where our kids want to be, like when they're 18 and when they're adults, and the kind of impact that we get to make on them right now, I think praying for them, um, you know, it's hard being a kid these days, like there's a lot of um, things that make them anxious or confused or that are hard. Um, I think, too, you know, the kids, if you're out here after church, you see them running around everywhere, and some of them are old enough that you could try to get to know a kid. Ask them what their name is. Remember their name on Sunday. Like, call them by their name. Being called by your name is a really big deal, especially when you're a kid, that someone will remember your name. Um, find out like what kind of book they like to read or what kind of movie they like and just get to know someone just like you would a grown-up. Um, get to know a kid, maybe get to know their parents too. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think just being known is such a special thing and getting to be known um, every Sunday of every week is a really special thing that the church can offer these kids that they might not be getting anywhere else. Thanks, Taylor. Seriously, uh, you know, Megan Oxford, she worked tirelessly, tirelessly for Van City Kids for a very long time, um, and Taylor Long has been serving the church, um, Van City Kids, the, the arguably the biggest, most important group of people in our uh, church um, in a way that, you know, if you have kids and you're down there, you know Taylor and you know the work that she puts into it. But for a lot of us, it's just kind of like, oh, I guess somebody's watching those people and putting it all together. So <laughs> thank you for the way that you care for our kids and serve our church and have done so, so consistently um, these years. Yeah, we love you. Taylor. <laughs> Let me pray for us uh, before we respond the way Jesus is teaching us to love one another as a family, and ask the Spirit to guide and direct us as we do so. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.